So the API Gateway product that we created at first essentially allows developers and architects to provide a modern API infrastructure for security, for logging, observability, traffic control, governance, on top of every API that anybody's building. You know, building the API is half of the job. The other half is making sure that we have the right API infrastructure to run it. APIs are products. Therefore, like any other product, they need to have a, a life cycle, a decommissioning window, new versions, new releases, and so on and so forth. My name is Marco Palladino, and I am the CTO and co-founder of Kong. This is Code Story, the podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Lampart, and today how Marco Palladino built the company powering reliable API connections and gateways. All this and more on Code Story. Marco Palladino migrated from Italy about 10 years ago and brought all of his Italian hobbies with him. He loves to cook, specifically pasta, of course, and enjoys a good glass of wine. He has a family with one kid and one on the way. He loves sports, soccer, and skiing. Beyond that, he is a self-taught developer where tech has been his side hobby and passion, but turned into his full-time gig. Marco and his co-founder came to San Francisco 10 years ago to build an API marketplace. Over time, they amassed 300,000 developers consuming and publishing APIs. Eventually, they figured out the business model wasn't working. So they open sourced the platform. This is the creation story of Kong. Kong today is a, an, an organization, a startup. Uh, we are 400 people and we provide software for architects and developers that want to empower the APIs that they're building. So we provide API management, we provide service mesh technologies uh, that enterprise organizations are using today to power the real world, which is what also makes me very excited about the work we're doing at Kong. Through the technology that we create, financial institutions, banking, traveling, the real world is powering real experiences with you know, real people. And, and that kind of impact is it's truly um, amazing. Kong uh, comes from another company, actually. Kong is the result of a pivot. When me and my co-founder, Augusto Marietti, came to San Francisco 10 years ago to build a business, it was a different type of business. It used to be an API marketplace where developers could find and publish or sell APIs that other developers could consume and use in their applications. And then over time, you know, we amassed 300,000 developers consuming and publishing APIs, but the business model was not working that well. And so in 2015, we decided to take our underlying technology, the one that was powering this marketplace and all these trillions of requests and make that open source. And that's how Kong was started. So it'll be interesting to hear where you want to start this, but I'm going to, I'm just going to ask it generically and let you, let you choose. Tell me about the MVP, whether it be the API marketplace or the pivot, um, you decide, and then how long it took you to build that and what sort of tools you use to bring it to life. When we built the API marketplace, 
we needed an API gateway that could power all the authentication and billing functions that the marketplace was providing. And um, there was nothing like that in the market. You know, we needed something that was quick, that was fast, something that could work in a decentralized way. And, you know, back in those days, the few API management solutions out there, they were a little bit too complex for our needs, very heavyweight um, and slow, not performant. So anyways, we decided to build it ourselves. When we pivoted the organization, you know, that was a very emotional time in the company because, you know, for five years, we have invested our day and night uh, making sure that the API marketplace could work. And when we pivoted away from that, you know, we essentially looked at the most valuable thing we had built, which was the technology that was hidden inside of the API marketplace product. And we decided to extract that and then uh, publish it separately as an open source project. So by the time we did open source the project, we were open sourcing something that MashShape already had running in production for a few years by then. Turns out that the same requirements we had when it came to performance and speed of execution and the, the actual gateway technology itself, what we built for ourselves, turns out was also what everybody else needed in this new world made by containers and Kubernetes and microservices. So the timing was very right for us to open source the product. You, you probably spoke with other entrepreneurs and founders that can't stress enough how important timing is whenever something happens. And you know, that was 2015, Kubernetes was out in 2014, Docker was out in 2013. So when we open sourced it, it was a good window of opportunity for us to bring something like that to, to market. And as a matter of fact, I remember we open sourced the project and the first day, you know, we we got a thousand stars on GitHub and people wanting to, you know, giving us feedback and opening issues. And, and soon after, organizations wanting from us some form of enterprise features or support that quite frankly, we were not prepared at that time to provide. You know, all of this was quite fast. It was overwhelming. And that's how we realized that perhaps our business shouldn't be the API marketplace anymore. It should be this new thing we just did. And so we pivoted the entire organization. So Mesh Ape, uh, the API marketplace, we had that logo uh, with an ape, with a gorilla. And when we decided to open source the underlying technology, we called it Kong, because Kong was the most popular and the biggest gorilla in the world, King Kong. And so that's how the name <laughs> came across. For those that aren't familiar with, you know, the API gateway, give me give me a voiceover or a few sentences on what that is. Ten years ago, Augusta and I had a vision around APIs. You know, ten years ago, APIs were, you know, today they're everywhere and everybody knows what an API is. But ten years ago, people were asking us, what is an API? Why do I need an API? And APIs is the underlying technology that allows a service to be able to use another service over the internet or over the network. Whenever we, for example, use Google Maps and there is a map showing up on our phone, you know, our phone doesn't store maps for the entire world. The map is being loaded from the Google servers and that communication it's called an API. So APIs are powering the modern world. Anything, every time we use Uber, every time we do anything over the internet, there is an API powering that information or that service. So APIs are overwhelmingly everywhere. But 10 years ago, it wasn't like that. Augusta and I 
had this vision that APIs would become an assembly line of software. You could reuse APIs that others had created in order to be able to create new products faster. And if the world was going to be run by APIs, well, then the world needed a marketplace where people could sell and find and consume these APIs. And so we built that marketplace, Mashing, back in those days. And then, you know, like I told you, we ran it for five years, ups and downs, and then we open source Kong and here we are. With the original API marketplace and with after the, the pivot, you had to make certain decisions and trade-offs about what you were going to start with, what you were going to accept to do in the beginning feature-wise and what technical debt you were going to be okay with. So tell me about some of those decisions and trade-offs you had to make and what sort of, you know, how you coped with those decisions. You see, when we do something, we are so deep into the product and our beliefs that it is very beneficial to take a step back and just have conversations with early adopters and early users. I mean, there is nothing better than anybody can do other than speaking with the users and the people that are showing interest into the product and and being able to account for that when building the features. You see, there is um, a certain degree of technical debt that technical debt is inevitable. Everybody is going to be creating it. Um, you know, every line of code is technical debt, and uh, and that's okay. It's just how it is. But there is technical debt in the features, and then there is technical debt in the architecture. Now, the thing about architecture is that it's very hard to change later on. So when a user asks us for a new feature down the road or a better way of doing something, that's very easy to build. All things considered. But changing how fundamentally the product works, that's a decision that's very hard to revert down the road. And so when we looked at technical depth, especially in the early days, we were trying to categorize that depth into two different fields. Is it an architectural technical depth? We have to fix this now, or this is gonna bite us later. Or is it a feature technical depth? And if it's a feature technical depth, then you you go through the prioritization process to determine, okay, how many people are asking for this? And if there are enough people asking for it, you put it at the top of your list and you build it. But architectural technical debt, that was the one that has always been worrying me the most. And uh, and that's the one that we we really worked hard to, to prevent you know, from having because it's very hard to revert down the road. From the point of the pivot, right? The pivot was successful. Right. And from that point, how have you progressed uh, the product and, and suite of products and, and how have you matured them? And, and I'm curious how you build your roadmap and decide, okay, this is the next most important thing to build. Kong is an open source, if you wish, open core company. So the API gateway product that we created at first essentially allows developers and architects to provide a modern API infrastructure for security, for logging, observability, traffic control, governance, and so on and so forth, on top of every API that anybody's building. You know, building the API is half of the job. The other half is making sure that we have the right API infrastructure to run it. APIs are products. Therefore, like any other product, they need to have a a life cycle, a decommissioning window, new versions, new releases, and so on and so forth. Now, uh, when it comes to uh, you know the the actual capabilities of the product and, and the way we looked at 
uh, at features and roadmap, there was a set of features that we wanted to build because it was enabling use cases that we thought the world would need. And then there was a 50% of those features where essentially we were just listening what users and customers wanted from us. In an open source business like ours, it is very important to set expectations right early on. Open source is human humanized social coding, if you wish, uh, in a sense that you know, open source requires a community of people that come along and build features together. And, and like any other social human interaction, it is very important that in open source as well, we do set the right expectations with, with the community. And, and that's very hard to do. And as easy as it sounds, that's why most open source projects fail because they fail to set these expectations or they break down, they break these expectations down the road and that breaks the trust and it's very hard to recover from that. Like any human interaction really. It doesn't have to be open source, it can be a friend. You know, in, in a friendship, there are expectations. If those expectations are broken, there is lack of trust and the friendship is not a friendship anymore. Likewise, the underlying human element uh, that drives our friendships and our human behaviors in a way also expands to open source software because at the end of the day, it's a bunch of people building something together. And, um, and it was very, uh, you know, we, we spent lots of time trying to figure out what was the right, the right line in the sand, the right expectations that we would set with the community of what goes open source and what goes in the commercial product. Open source is free to use, but it's not free to build. And so I think that the first expectation anybody who's really trying to build a business around open source should set is that there is going to be a commercial set of features or support or services that are, of course, not going to be available in the open source. That, again, is a very important decision making uh, in, in early on in every open source project that wants to build a business. I consider this as important as the architecture of the software. It's, it's an important decision because essentially it is the architecture of the business itself. And then once that expectation is being set, you know, these are the things that we're going to be doing open source. And these are the things that are a little bit more advanced and they're going to be available through a commercial relationship. Then, you know, the rest of the roadmap you build by, you know, 50% by being a visionary in your space and the other 50% trying to, you know, listen to people and listen to customers and listen to users and, and simply trying to understand what they're trying to build and prioritize their ask on a spreadsheet. You know, product building, you know, there is a component that's visionary and, and that's always lots of fun, you know, but it's very hard to pull, pull off, to, to pull out because, you know, not everybody knows for certain what the future is gonna look like. But asking users and customers what they want to build, that's the best way to, be, to build product roadmaps because you're hearing it from the folks and the people that are going to be using the product in production. And at the end of the day, whatever we build has to cater to them. And so collecting these requirements truly is a bunch of lines on a spreadsheet and a bunch of plus ones, depending how many people want it. And what people want the most, it's going to ship first. Simple as that. Let's switch to team. So how did you go about building your team? And what did you look for in those people to indicate that they were the winning horses to join you? Building the team was easy at first uh, because we did have a group of contributors around the open source project 
that were already contributing feature to Kong, features to Kong in the open source ecosystem. And so essentially we told them, hey, would you like to get paid and just keep doing what you're doing 24-7? <laughs> and so they became um, early engineers and employees on, on the team. And, um, and, you know, you, and that's how, that's a very easy, it's a low hanging fruit on, you know, how we, how can, how anybody can really build a team around an open source project just by looking at the original and initial contrib contributors. And then over time, you know, we matured the criteria that we were looking at when, when hiring people. And, and one of those criteria, which cannot be stressed enough is deciding to work with people that we have pleasure working with. One of the things that I've learned as a founder is that there is always going to be a next goal. You know, when you're starting early on, there's nothing. You know, the next goal is building, a, you know, the V1 of your product. And then the next goal is, you know, getting to a certain amount of revenue. And then the next goal, it eventually is going to be to become a public organization. And then you're public one day and there's going to be a next goal and a next one and a next one and a next one. Goals are a way to keep the score along the journey, a way for us to keep the team focused on the execution. But at the end of the day, what matters is the human journey with the people that we surround ourselves with. You see, the goals are going to be to keep changing and there's always going to be something next. But having fun along the way and having fun with, you know, building relationships, human connections with the folks that we're going to be spending all of this time with that is incredibly important. And so the bigger Kong becomes and the more I stress this human component, this human factor. Of course, I'm very proud of working with amazing engineers at Kong that are high performing. They are leaders in their field. They have done amazing things in the technology industry uh, when it comes to the you know, R&D department. And, and um, but most importantly, I'm, I'm glad to say that these are folks that I like to work with. And, and they like to work at Kong. And at the end of the day, this is what matters. It's, a, it's, a, it's like building a tribe. It's like building this group of people all committed to the same mission. Given the nature of your products, this question, my next question will be um, interesting, but I'm going to ask it um, kind of in a generic sort of ignorant way. Did you build this to scale efficiently from day one or are you fighting this as you grow? We built the architecture of the product to be able to scale and accommodate future expansion. But when it comes to the business itself, well, that's a different story. Uh, um, you know, every founder and you know every leader can tell you this: that you know, in the early days, we we think that the hardest part is building the product, and it is right. And so eventually, you know, we build the product, we ship it, people start using it, and then eventually we have to build an organization around that. And it turns out that building the, the organization, you know, building scalable processes for people to come and join this organization and, and work and, and be productive, that's quite frankly much tougher than building the initial product. And, and this was a oh, oh, moment for me, you know, I was like, wow, you know, I, I never understood truly and appreciated how hard it is to build an organization that can scale when you are above 100 people, 200, 300, 400. And I guess the fundamental reason why this is very problematic, it is because people, humans, humanity, uh, you know, it's very hard to scale. It's not a process that you can keep feeding 
um, you know, we can keep feeding some code or some nodes and it just keeps working in a predictable way. Humans are fundamentally unpredictable. Each one of us is. And scaling an environment uh, like this, it, it is very tough and very challenging. I have lots of respect for leaders that are able to put together a large group of people and, and motivate them towards the same goals and the same mission. It's something that's incredibly hard to do. And now I also understand why some founders, they never go to this stage and they want to sell their company before they get to this stage. Many times I was looking in our industry and reading, you know, about great companies, you know, 50 people, 60 people creating great products and getting acquired. And, and I always thought, you know, why did they sell? You know, this thing is massive. If they kept going, they would be valued 10x more, 20x more, 100x more. And then I understood one important thing. These leaders were selling just before they had to go ahead and scale the actual organization and, and the processes around it. Because for some folks, guess what? That's not fun. The fun part is being, building a product, getting the customers, getting the initial adoption, you know, building something that grows over time. And it's not as fun to go build a global team of people that is going to be able to uh, execute on a great go-to-market. For some founders, that's just not their passion. And so if they are, if they have something that works, you know, then you are at a point of the uh, organization where you have to choose, okay, am I gonna raise more money and then go ahead and build the org? Or am I not gonna raise and sell and get acquired? You know, of course for Kong, we decided to keep going, but boy oh boy, I understand now why somebody would sell. It's incredibly challenging. It's a completely different skill set, building the, the org, building the teams, than, than just building the product. Well, as you step out on the balcony and you look across all that you've built, what are you most proud of? Of never giving up, uh, personally, of never giving up. Um, I think that there were like plenty of times where me and Augusto should have probably given up and we haven't. And I think that being immigrants in the US um, kept us going more than we should have. You know, so far it played out. Uh, we're very happy that we didn't give up, but it was not a rational decision. And maybe we can double down on this. Uh, but from an organizational standpoint, I'm very proud to have created something where you know other people that are joining us can express themselves and they're finding kong has been their mojo and and they're finding this as being an environment where they can be highly productive i mean there is nothing better than providing the right tools and the right environment to people to be highly productive and when you know you see them being happy because of this i mean that's that's something that makes me proud you know at the end of the day like i said you know we're building we're building a product we're building a business but we're also building a tribe in a way and made of humans and human connections and human aspirations and, and being able to have a, a creative place where we can all express ourselves it, it is something that's very hard to pull off so that, that's something that makes me very proud well let's flip the script a little bit Tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it. I think that, you know, we should have transitioned to Kong maybe one year earlier than we did. Um, of course, 
you know, you see, capturing an opportunity is a limited window in time. Every time there is an opportunity, every time there is, um, there is, you know, chance, uh, an opening to do something. It's not unlimited. It's very limited. It's a limited window. And the, and once you do have that window, you know, it's very important to be able to capitalize on it as, you know, as hard as you can. And I think that perhaps the market was ready for something like Kong a year before Kong was open sourced. So we, I think we tried for one year longer than we should have to make the API marketplace work. Now, with that said, I don't know what I don't know. Maybe I think this way right now, but if we did release it a year prior, the market would not have received the project that the way it did it happened a year later. But um, but you know, I, I think I, I wish we, we we started a year earlier to open source it. And then we waited a little bit too long to hire the first salesperson. When when building a project and when building a product, we are very opinionated because we have to be at the beginning to make all the right decisions and, and you know, the, the product features that we want to build. But at the end of the day, what matters is what others, the users, think of them. And hiring a sales team earlier on, it's incredibly helpful to, to help refocus what we should be working on. What we think was important or some things that we think were important when presented in front of a potential customer, turns out it doesn't really matter. And maybe other things are more important. And that reality check never really happens until we are in front of a customer. We were trying to wait until we were ready before hiring the first salesperson. But reality is that you really want to hire the first one when you're not ready, because it's gonna give you the chance to iterate on the right things that are top of mind to the potential users early on and um and so i wish i wish we did hire the first salesperson a little bit earlier now with that said you know of course kong is doing great and you know the company is growing we are we're working with amazing engineers and customers and, and users out there so you know again you know these are my beliefs at this point in time what we did worked worked out um but i believe that hiring a salesperson um much earlier on in the journey would have certainly have have helped a little bit more. What does the future look like for Kong, the company, your products, and for your team? Well, so Kong is is growing. You know, the the technology itself um, it's ubiquitous. You know, Kong uh, has more than three hundred million downloads around the world. We have over three million instances of Kong running around the world every month. We started as an API gateway management organization, but now we, we do much more than that. Uh, you know, the connectivity use case has been expanding over time, so the market is getting bigger. And, you know, we started doing uh, service mesh in addition to API management. Uh, we now have just released our cloud platform. So we are executing on, on every front uh, that, you know, that we think we should be working on. And, and so far, things are going great. Uh, we are a Gartner leader for the second year in a row. And we are the most visionary leader at that on the far right side of the corner. This is very important to our customers. We're building a global team. Uh, we are doubling down on uh, not only the engineering teams, of course, but also customer success. So one of the things that uh, we learned early on when it comes to the type of business that we're working on, 
is that our customers really are not just looking for technology. They're also looking for a partnership. Uh, and that's very important to them. We work with architectural teams and platform teams of large enterprise organizations, and we sell them technology that they're going to be deploying across the org in order to power the application teams and all that they're building. This is not a transaction. This is a partnership because there is always going to be an edge case. There is always going to be a edge requirement or there is always going to be education and enablement that needs to happen in order for them to be successful. And we have doubled down on our customer success team, which essentially shows up uh, after, you know, we become, uh, after Kong has been selected as a vendor to support them. And in the past 12 months, we have addressed more than 4,500 customer enablement requests for education, for training, in order to help them being more successful. As well as we made more than 100 product releases in the past 12 months across the board, the gateway product, the cloud product, the service mesh products, and so on and so forth. Let's switch to you, Marco. Who influences the way that you work? Name a CEO, a CTO, an architect, really any person that you look up to and why. I was very impressed by John Chambers, the ex-CEO of Cisco, in the way he led Cisco and he turned around the company and he made Cisco a, uh, a leader in their connectivity space. And, you know, one of the things that he said is the following, you know, Cisco at the time, they were not doing anything particularly better or faster than every other competitor. But Cisco was doing something that others didn't do at the time. As a matter of fact, Cisco was competing with much larger organizations at the time. But whenever there was a market shift, whenever there was a market transition, other organizations, because this is the human instinct, you know, when something changes, the human reaction to that is feeling threatened, right? So the mar- there is a market shift that is challenging the things that we have been doing, and that market shift creates a negative emotion, first and foremost. Whereas John Chambers, educated Cisco to think of those threats as an opportunity. What if a threat is an opportunity for us to get bigger, to do better, to enter new markets? And this positive mindset, it's something that, oh my God, it's so true in everything that we do at Kong as well. You know, our world is changing very rapidly. Every couple of years, there is a new technology, a new pattern, a new way of doing things. And, And we're seeing that with, you know, with our competitors at the time, Kong exists today because when there was a market transition to microservices and containers, others looked at that transition as a threat to their business, whereas we saw it as an opportunity and we built something for this new world that didn't exist before. And that's why Kong was able to capture this window of opportunity. And so how do we teach Kong, the organization and the people in the org that it's part of life. There is always going to be a new thing. There is always going to be new challenges. How can we understand what that means and make that part of our playbook? Now, if any organization is able to do this, they create a playbook for innovation that is going to be making this company invincible because this company is always going to be able to partner with their customers, always going to be able to make them successful with whatever trend comes out from the industry. And this is so important for every organization, especially for the ones that want to build a long-lasting impact in the world. Okay, we we talked about a mistake earlier, but a little bit different spin, Marco. If you could go back to the beginning, 
What would you do differently? Or where would you consider taking a different approach? You know, when my, when my journey as an entrepreneur started with Augusto, we came to the U.S. with a prototype. And we came here with little to no money. Um, we put ourselves through very bad times. You know, when I first came, in, came here, uh, we, we didn't have money to essentially pay for food. So we, I lost 20 pounds. That was very unhealthy. Uh, we were skipping dinners because we truly had no money whatsoever. You know, me and Augusto uh, don't come from wealthy families at all, at all. As a matter of fact, I don't think our families, you know, I was in my early 20s. I was 21 years old when I came here to the other side of the world to build a business. And, um, and we really couldn't uh, focus on the business until we solved our immigration problem. You know, in order to come to the US, uh, it's important to get a visa. It's important to be able to stay here long term so that we can think long term. We can start looking for employees long term. We can start finding an office space long term. And, and, and you know, we underestimated how hard that would be. And for the first two years, really, we couldn't focus on the business because we were focusing on our immigration status. <laughs> and that was incredibly distracting. Uh, I wish that back in those days, we had made more research into what we had to do in order to rightfully uh, and lawfully work in the United States without having to learn that on the way, you know, on the way here to the US. I think a little bit more research would have helped. Um, but on the other side, you know, it, it's very hard to go back and, and, and think, you know, what we would have done differently because at the end of the day, I'm here talking to you today. Uh, and, and maybe, you know, the butterfly effect, maybe changing something in the past would not have led to the same conclusion today. Uh, but, you know, and, and not, not, you know, not having any money whatsoever uh, was also very beneficial for us because we were much more motivated to build a network of people that eventually could help us. You see, for every entrepreneur that comes to Silicon Valley, you know, in the, in the books, in the movies, Silicon Valley looks like a very open-minded place. But turns out that if you're trying to raise money, it's actually a very close-minded place in a sense that you really have to build a network of people that can filter you out and introduce you to other folks. Be, coming here and building a product without building that network, it is going to make things much harder when it comes to fundraising and things like that. And because we were very motivated to meet people, we actually didn't have any money whatsoever to stay at the motel we were staying. So we started emailing people around if they could help us. And um, at the time, Travis Kalanick, who later became the CEO of uh, Uber, you know, this was before Uber, he hosted us in his place because, you know, he sold Red Solution. He was doing philanthropy. He was helping other entrepreneurs. And, uh, you know, we stayed there and we got introduced to um, his network. And that's how we met great entrepreneurs that were just starting at the time. Aaron Levy from Box.net, you know, Drew Houston from Dropbox and so on and so forth. During those days, uh, you know, eventually Travis kicked us out, uh, you know, after a month. And, you know, we, Augusto met these other guys that were renting air mattresses on the ground. And so he met Joe Gabia and Brian Chesky, you know, the founders of Airbnb early on. when Airbnb was 10 people at Joe Gabia's place uh, here in San Francisco. And, you know, we had a chance to hang out with them and, and, build, uh, and build our network. And then eventually this network resulted into being introduced to uh, investors that essentially trusted the introduction because you know they were pre-filtered. Essentially, when you get an introduction, the person who introduces you 
is already filtering you out that you are you are indeed worth of an introduction and these can lead to much better outcomes here in Silicon Valley. That's amazing. So there, there's a lot there, right? You're, you're focused on immigration status, so you couldn't focus on the company. But then later on, you're telling me you are networking and digging and it's hard because you don't have that network. But then you're meeting up with Travis at Uber. You're meeting up with Chesney at Airbnb and your network blows up. That's I mean, it's an amazing story. You know, in Italy, it's not a bad country, right? You have, you know, it doesn't take much, you know, uh, money to live comfortably and, and come here and, and you know, and, and you know, and stay there and build something there. But me and Augusto, we convinced ourselves that we couldn't go back. Augusto and I came to the U.S. and we were not willing to go back unless we fulfilled our dream of building a business, a, an organization. And we put ourselves through so much without ever considering to ever go back. I mean, we slept on benches on the, in Dolores Park because at one point we didn't have a place to stay. So for me, you know, when you're looking at Kong, you're not looking just at the journey of a business. You're looking at the personal life and, and you know, you're looking at the personal dedication of um, Augusta and I, you know, from those early days of, of building something that was lasting. We are not executing on in a market with a product um, and just executing on a business. We are essentially executing on the reason why, uh, you know, we're here since our early 20s. You know, we, we really didn't have a normal uh, youth, if you wish. You know, we didn't have money to go out. We didn't have money to have fun. We didn't have money to pretty much do anything other than focusing on the code base and trying to build something that worked. And then eventually, five years later, that turned into Kong, but it could have gone a lot differently. But either way, Kong or not Kong, we were not willing to give up. You know, one of the questions I ask to the leaders that I interview here and there is the following. Do you love to win? Do you want to win or do you hate to lose? Which one is the driver? And for me and for Augusta and I, the driver really was passion and hating the failure. We could not afford to put ourselves through the journey back to Italy in, a, in the back of the plane, middle row, middle seat, flying for 15 hours, thinking of the big failure we just achieved, and then landing at the airport in Italy, my our parents picking us up, you know, we were in our mid-20s, our parents picking us up and asking ourselves, so how did it go? And telling them we failed. Like that entire thing was unacceptable to us. So we were not going to go back. We were not going to fail. We were not going to stop. We would have done anything it took to build a business. And, um, and that's what we did. It, that's very irrational. It's not a rational decision making. It's uh, very irrational. And, uh, but, but here we are. So it worked at least. Last question, Marco. So you're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to the world. Can't wait to show it off to you right there on the plane. What advice do you give that person having gone down this road a bit? I'm going to tell them to don't give up, uh, whatever it takes. I, I strongly believe, and I know it may sound cliche, but I truly believe that when people don't give up, eventually they get it. Winning is always the result of not giving up, but I know that failure is always the result of giving up. So to win, somebody must not give up. It's simple as that. 
because the only outcome that giving up leads to is failure. And to me, that is unacceptable and most likely to them as well. But also to zoom out, right? When we are deep into the woods, you know, and we're trying to work and iterate on our beliefs and the product features, you know, sometimes we 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 redline, you know, we 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 become victims of our own beliefs, which may be wrong. And it's very important to always step out of that mindset and zoom out. It could be stop working for a week, going on a walk uh, in the park, something that allows us to quit the crazy daily mess and, um, and allow us to focus a little bit more strategically. Every time we did that, in my experience, we made the right call. Every time we were able to take a, a breather, step, step back, zoom out, we were able to then make the right strategic decision. So not giving up, zooming out from time to time. And as the business grows, the most important thing is learning how to trust. In the early days of a business, the founder or founders are doing pretty much everything. And every decision is theirs and everything that they build is, you know, they're responsible for it. But that doesn't scale in the long run. In the long run, we have to hire people that are going to be part of this team and are going to be executing with us, alongside us, towards our mission and our achieving our goals. But they cannot be successful if we don't trust them. And that's one of the hardest things to do when the company switches from being just the founders and a few folks into being being a real organization. For me, it happened when Kong was 40, 50 people. We have to give trust to people. We have to give trust that even if they mess up, we trust them to do the right thing and fix it. But not releasing that trust, not giving them that trust, it is not going to make them successful, which means that we're not going to be able to scale. Uh, those are those are fantastic bits of advice. Well, Marco, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for telling the creation story of Kong. Thank you so much. This was fun. And this concludes another chapter of Code Story. Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Laphart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. Support the show on patreon.com slash codestory for just five to ten bucks a month. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening.